Welcome to Secret Handshake, the podcast that covers the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. This week, spine number six, 1986's Manhunter. With prime 1980s Michael Mann lighting, the first cinematic representation of Hannibal Lecter and Chris Elliott. Jacob. Yeah. Dream much? (laughs) Somewhere between dreams and reality lies the key to a killer's identity. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? Hunting in that dangerous place is FBI agent Will Graham. What is it you think you're becoming? The closer he gets to the killer, the more deadly the dreams become. Manhunter. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check local listings. Back to Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Cody Bouchard. Hello. And Martin One White Glove Carlson. <laughs> Just one. Just one. Just gloves.org. He actually onlygloves.org. <laughs> only sorry, only gloves. Only gloves. <laughs> Unless the you founder. pay extra, then, then you get access to the secret box. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, what a secret box it is. Um you know, this is the first time we've recorded in a couple weeks. Cody was going over how long we kind of been apart. We recorded five episodes real fast, and then, you know, schedules came up and life and whatnot. But, boys, it's good to be back. I totally agree. Good to be back in the saddle. But, Martin, we all hung out on your birthday. It's not like we didn't see each other. We actually had a very interesting conversation that pertains to uh, this week's movie, we talked about which Hannibal Lecter we thought would eat their own jizz. And <laughs> you're right. Why? Well, I, I, I forgot that. Well, yeah, because now tell our delighted audience how this came up because you had, it was a story that I still don't believe is 100% true. It's not that I don't think like you had this conversation because it was like a roommate or something that talked about, yes. well, you just tell it. So I'm not going to use names, but one of my really good friends from Johnny Sins, uh, one of my really good friends from college, um, we were, we were hanging out probably like our freshman or sophomore year and we're just sitting there talking and he goes, Oh, you know, Kind of like what jizz tastes like. And I was like, I, I don't know what that tastes like. And he's like, yeah, I mean, like, you know, it just tastes I'm like, no, I, I don't know. He's like, so you're telling me you never came in a, dip, a Dixie cup and sipped it. I was like, never fucking done that. There's no way that dude did that. I, That's the part of the story I don't. He like, did do it. If you knew him, he fucking did it. Yeah, and he, he jacked off in a Dixie cup. Just to like try it. Just sipped it. Oh, like a little taster at a restaurant. Just like, hmm, what does this semen taste yeah, it's like? like? What's the ranch like here? Do you think Have you a got a bite? <laughs> <laughs> you think he, uh, 
I think he went down the, the dormitory hallway just asking favors of friends and got like a flight just for comparisons. No, he, but the, but then we went on the conversation then of, cause we were talking about getting ready for this recording. Yeah. Right. And then it was just us talking about which of the Hannibal Lecter's would. Yeah. Which Hannibal Lecter we thought would actually eat his own jizz. Uh, Cody, which one did we settle on? So let's just run down the, the list. I think it's the TV version guy. For oh sure. yeah, it's, it's, totally, it's Mads. Yeah, Mads. Oh, Mads has definitely tasted his own jizz. That just, guy, that guy has licked his own butthole. I guarantee it. You think? I don't think he's that flexible. Like I Mads think he seems pretty tall. Eh, I think he worked. That's at fair. It. Like I can't see Brian Cox eating his own jizz. Anthony Hopkins, maybe. Um, I think. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this later. But Mads Mickelson gargled some ropes. Like, <laughs> God. He probably like removed seminal vesicles from victims and just like made them into a martini. Yeah, just to see like what the seasoning is like. You know, like I, I like what knew. if I he put just, this? He, he, he found a recipe that he liked. And he continued to yeah, yeah. Or it's, like it's his au jus. <laughs> <laughs> or what is a Bernays sauce? Yeah, <laughs> hollandaise. Yeah, he makes it into his hollandaise. <laughs> He's, 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 got a, he's got a preparation for each meal of the day. Don't eat the eggs Benedict at Hannibal Lecter's house. Don't trust the toaster strudel. Speaking of Hannibal Lecter and eating things, this week's movie is 1986's Manhunter. Michael Mann's early... Well, I think we're going to debate whether or not it's a masterpiece because, Martin, this was your pick. Yeah. Um, explain why you picked it. Yeah, so this... Honestly, is a film um, that consistently is rising up my like favorites list. Um, and <laughs> don't give that look. Um, and it, when I first saw it, I was going through like the Michael Mann filmography, and this is like actually pre IMDb, so it was like harder to kind of like always know. I had to watch all these films. I was picking films and realizing they were Michael Mann movies after the fact. So I was, I had just seen. Last Mohicans, I'm like, oh man, it's really great. And I knew I knew Heat was him. And then I was like, oh, I've never seen Manhunter, and I had just seen Silence of the Lambs the first time. Um, this is before Hannibal came out and before Red Dragon came out. So I said, oh, give this a shot. And while I'm watching the credits, sure enough, Michael Mann, it was just this accidental thing. And I watched it and it just it hit me. Even at that age, I think I was like 13. Just like the lighting, the 80s feel. I was already into that kind of which now I've become overused now that's like heavy blue lighting and synth and synth music uh yeah the I, thing that film twitter now refers to as like bisexual lighting on there to where it's like a lot of violets a lot of blues yeah to where they called it bisexual and i'm like is it because it's two colors or i don't understand yeah and and, well, and i was already a carpenter fan too so it's definitely like a crossover in terms of the, like the lighting style especially of manhunter um and the other reason i picked it i think it is one of the most um secret handshake films I have with like a couple of my best friends I've met at festivals. Our connection is over Manhunter, like not Michael Mann, but Michael Mann as well. But staying in line with buddy Bo for my first year at South by my first screening, we're in line for an hour waiting and we start chatting what kind of stuff we're into. And he said, Oh, um, sorry to find Michael Mann. And he brings up Manhunter and it's like an hour conversation just about Manhunter. Yeah. And we're still friends. Um, Yeah. Well, and I think it's also uh, worth noting that, like, this movie did have sort of a weird history to where, like, you know, now, because man's status as, like, a, a premier auteur and 
um, film Twitter loving basically every single thing that he does. Like it's almost like roundly accepted that Manhunter is like this crowning achievement or masterpiece and was always looked upon as such when, I mean, in truth, it was kind of a cult movie for a long time. Like, as you put it, it was a secret handshake film with you and your friends. Um, and like, uh, to me, you either saw it on VHS or you saw it on like the old, like anchor Bay yep. DVD release that was out there that had the director's cut on it. That but red like, double disc. Yeah. But if you weren't like an anchor Bay or a Michael Mann freak, like, like Manhunter wasn't a thing, but like nowadays it's, it, it's pretty almost universally accepted as one of his best movies and also one of the best like serial killer movies of all time, which we again can get into later. Um, but at the time it really was his return to movies because he had retreated after the failure of the keep. Yeah. He had retreated to TV and almost basically sworn off filmmaking entirely, at least for theaters and went and made, you know, helped shepherd Miami vice made crime story with uh, Dennis Farina and then had to essentially be persuaded to come back to, t- uh, to movies and then took a theatrical break between that and last Mohicans. Right. You know, and it's just, he's, just, he's not, I mean, it's, it's almost Malick levels of breaks sometimes yeah. between his films. Like not, he's not the recluse that, that Malick was between days of heaven. And did he make the first iteration of heat, which is, LA takedown. Yeah, he made this in between uh Manhunter and Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, with Michael Rooker and um right. like 90 minutes long, which is like Yeah. Doesn't Xander Berkeley play Neil McCauley in that? He I think it's no. One of the main he guys. he's yeah, Vincent or Macaulay is, is a bigger actor, and the other one's like someone I just don't know. I have it on tape. I haven't watched it in years. Yeah, I watched like part of it like a long time ago. It's not good. <laughs> well, he hates it. He really hates that yeah, film. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, like he he hates it more than he hates The Keep in terms of talking about it and yeah. it ever seeing the light of day. Um, but it is an interesting dry run for Heat because you see like all the elements are there. It's just that he's hamstrung by the limitations of TV. And it almost feels like just in how uh, the keep made him go to the cinemas again, maybe, you know, LA takedown made him go and make last of the Mohicans and just become a total fucking madman. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and back to what you were saying too, about just Manhunter being kind of, I guess unappreciated for a long time was it didn't help when silence of lamb comes out in the early nineties and basically just like, the you know the first majorly Oscar winning horror film you know and right that, that people say and it, it really took I mean Anthony Hopkins became such a still is to this day his character is such a like kind of household name like yeah. Hannibal right. no there, you can't find I I dare you to find somebody that doesn't know the name Hannibal Lecter when you say it yeah, and, and they're going to think of a, Anthony Hopkins yeah such. exactly um, but I mean yeah it is true but but it, the time when like uh, Silence of the Lambs wins, because that's what, 91 yeah. ends up winning in 92. And uh, by the time that came out, like Manhunter was essentially relegated to being the answer to a trivia question to where it was like, yep. well, did you know that uh, Anthony Hopkins wasn't the first Hannibal Lecter? I wonder how it, Brian Cox felt about that. Yeah, Brian Cox. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brian Cox is like, what the fuck over here? Like, but uh, Cody, this was your 
first time seeing it, correct? Yeah, first time viewing. And I, as I, I usual... I had seen uh, Red Dragon before, but I hadn't seen Manhunter. Okay. And as usual, we kind of had a bit of a dissenter in the ranks. Like, you weren't as taken with it as we were. I liked elements of it. I, I didn't I didn't like it as a, as a whole. Okay. What parts did you like? I liked all the... All the color washed synth heavy scenes it yeah felt very you were comparing it to blade runner yeah it while felt we were very blade it. runner to me yeah i and i i love that stuff i love the the times when the characters are communicating without words they're just using their eyes and their bodies and and they're kind of palpable emotions and right when things are just like color washed in that and you have such a great sound balance with it it's almost like the air is singing yeah this is perhaps like the ultimate dude staring intensely at stuff while awesome music plays in the background movie like ever yeah. made it's and that's also like what I, I want yeah that's all i want from movie like seriously like i, I write screenplays but i'll write never another word again if i could just yeah. do that <laughs> well in Cody, like, so, so you're saying you want to direct drive well the sort of well in drive they need really neon, takes it, it takes a lot from this and, and, I, and I love drive let me put that out there yeah but um it, there is something interesting that you are bringing up though cody because that would become a man trademark like as his movies progressed is that one of the things that a lot of actors have talked about with working with man is that you know he doesn't look at performance as like bombast or 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 uh huge monologues or like these shouting matches or anything yeah to him he almost treats actors sometimes as not pieces of furniture, plants, but there's a, um, let's say a stillness or like a, a placement that he uses to put them in the frame to kind of evoke a certain emotion whenever, you know, he's shooting a movie. Um, it's why someone like, you know, Johnny Depp, uh, notoriously had a very hard time working with him on public enemies. So did Christian Bale, uh-huh. uh, because they were like, they just weren't used to his style of directing to where they were almost like uh, figurines a lot of the time for, for him to frame and place. Meanwhile, they're like behind the scenes going like, I just want to emote, damn it. Yeah, like Johnny Depp just wants to do a weird voice and like maybe wear a pirate hat. I don't know. <laughs> Whilst yeah. hopping over a counter holding a Tommy gun. Exactly. I love public enemies. I mean, we can get into that later, but that, that that's that's a big one for me that I think is vastly underrated. Yeah, man is, um, he's also, when he's working with actors, um, he's kind of known for sticking to the script, like, exactly. Right. Um, and so, he, uh, when I was watching an interview he's about- He's almost despotic. He, he really is. And so, is he the kind of director that's like, uh, you missed a comma there? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. So, he's he's like- that can be great when it's used correctly. Right. And he's, you know, but he working on, especially Thief, I know that um, he was working with uh, James Belushi and Belushi was using contractions, like making contractions of what were in, was in the script. And Michael Mann's like, don't do that. Yeah. He said, you say the whole, he's like, you, you don't say can't, you say cannot. And, and, but he explained to him, he's like, you, with you characters, um, one piece of missed information could mean your life. So Michael Mann, while he does treat them like furniture, he does ridiculously long oh, yeah. backstories for people. Like um, for Collateral, he literally like day one of like the table read with uh, um, Tom Cruise, hands him a biography. He's like, you were born in Gary, Indiana. Here's what your parents did. He just wrote him a biography for his character. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like the, you know, 
for heat and stuff, those are all based on real guys. Yep. Um, and there's that whole great, I believe it's Rolling Stone article that actually interviews the real that um, Vincent Hanna was based off of. Um, but anyway, they go into like how it was like this tremendous amount of research that he went and did and wanted to represent that on screen. What I find funny about though is, you know, probably the most iconic uh, performances in any man movie. One is almost like the antithesis of what you usually get in a man movie, which is Pacino, who's just going full yeah. roar Pacino totally Whoa. over the top. Yeah. Great ass. <laughs> you got your head all the way up. <laughs> and Johnny, uh, she's ovulating. <laughs> but then you oh God, you went to the devil's advocate. Sure did. <laughs> but um but then you have De Niro who is uh, a quintessential man performance yeah. in that is that he's stoic. He's a man of few words and he's totally into the, I'm going to pose in this frame. I'm going to let Michael Mann light me exactly right. I'm going to stare out at the horizon and the ocean and you're going to know exactly what uh, Neil McCauley's thinking at all times, which I, I think that's also why a lot of people take it as being perhaps Michael Mann's best movie. I don't agree. Well, it might be his best movie. I don't think it's the ultimate Michael Mann movie. Yeah, he, um, and that shot, that shot from Heat when he's overlooking the ocean is based on a painting. Right. So, you know, Michael Mann is a very visual filmmaker, but he, you know, working with actors, they can be, like you said, kind of, he makes them be kind of still. I would say next to Pacino, I'd say Khan is one of his bigger performances too. Because you get moments of James Khan being James Khan and Thief, where he gets, you know, he does his kind of... The oh, whole shouting, the shouting match with him and is it Tuesday Weld in the... Yeah. In the the car on the ride home from like their first date where he's... She's like, trying to call out and fucking him. You know, like... Yeah, he he gets to be like full James Con in certain scenes. Yeah, he definitely like, kind of comes across. Um, but it's so, I mean, since we're talking about actors, um, should we get into like some of, or did you have another idea in mind? I was thinking about talking about William Peterson here. Well, yeah, go go right into William Peterson. I mean, we should probably get to Manhunter at some point <laughs> on the Manhunter episode. Yeah, so get into that Peterson. Um, wait, before we do this, I actually am curious what Cody didn't like about it. The main character's performance, I thought, was kind of uh, William Peterson, s- stiff and dry. Oh, I don't know. If I didn't I can think there was a lot. That, I, I didn't feel a lot of depth coming from him, and also I didn't find the main antagonist all that intimidating. Uh, for, aside from being tall and albino, did we watch the same movie? We or? did, but it, I mean, the guy's supposed to be like physically ripped, right? Like he's supposed to work out constantly. That's true. That he guy, is. That in, guy was not in very good in, shape at all. In the book and the later uh, adaptation with Ray Fiennes, like they. Uh, heavily focus on the fact that he's a bodybuilder because it is, you know, for Francis Dollarhide, the tooth fairy, it's basically him overcompensating for His the disfigurement palette. that he, he feels he owns. Right. Um, which that's the one thing about, I, I feel like Manhunter gets more right than red Dragon. One of many things that Manhunter gets more right than red dragon is that at least Tom Noonan is ugly. Yeah, uh, Ray Fiennes is too charming in that yeah, movie like I, too. I, I watched. That, he, yeah, he does. He, Ray Fiennes. Like I haven't seen that movie in a very long time. You both watched it recently, but I'm just going yesterday. Off of <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I'm going up. I don't know. Probably a decade ago, but like his character was. I don't know a better term for this. He was kind of a titty baby, right? Like he seemed like very. Yeah. Just kind of well, like, that's from the that's from the book too. Okay. 
is that he's abused but at least, by at least fine scene, his like grandmother who raises him in the uh, nursing home yeah, because then definitely. he ends up living in the abandoned nursing home. We're in Manhunter. He just lives in a house like in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah, it's Cape Fear. Um, shot on Cape Fear. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, and they, but this very, <laughs> very Call Francis Turrell hide a titty baby. I just want to point that out. But he, you know, yeah, the design. Obviously no, I'm of, talking about Fine's performance of him. Like he seemed. Very, no, no, I just, yeah. just he's fucking whiny. Yeah, he's. I didn't, I didn't find the performance of Manhunter. I didn't find the guy to be whiny. No, no, he's not at all. But that's the part where I disagree with you with the whole like he's not intimidating because to me like Tom Noonan in that movie is terrifying. I, I think he's top five. One of I think the scariest movie characters. Period. I. I I find him. Te- I find him very, very. Um, I find him intimidating. I find him frightening, and a lot of that is we talked about this when we were watching it. But like Noonan is very method and known for which yeah. man loved because it, it's funny you say a man like treating people like furniture, but he also likes people to take chances. You know, I think he. Well, and he also likes method dudes. Like he fucking loves Daniel Day Lewis and Last of the Mohicans. So. I think he was more intimidating and scary in Last Action Hero. <laughs> but, but but real quick, but but about about Dollarhide though he, I mean, when he was performing when he was getting ready for the part like Noonan, Mand and I asked him to do this, but he followed the actors around offset like he stalked them to get into character. And Noonan is known even on Monster Squad for being separated from the rest of the crew and the cast. You know, he said, "I want I'm Frankenstein in this, and I'm Dollarhide in this. I don't want you to see me or know me," which I think in the film works and. I think he's very frightening. I think he's he's pitiful and and very very sad, but never at the point where I don't feel like when the the hat drops, he's not going to slit my throat and do horrible things. Like Fines, obviously, Fines is like that's Ray Fines to me. No matter how good you are, I believe Tom Noonan would be a serial killer. I get this vibe of like. He's very hulking and very kind of Frankenstein-like. Um, Ray Fiennes scares me, too, though. Like, not for you. Well, I always think of Schindler's We well, scare in that. Yeah, where he's just, like, shooting, you know, the Jewish people in the concentration camp for sport, essentially, and then going and taking a piss. So it's like, I don't know, Fiennes has always been scary to me as well. But I get what you're saying, to, especially when you watch that movie and the fact that, like, Ratner... <clears throat> And Ted Talley very much focus on uh, the relationship that blossoms between him and uh, in that movie, it's Emily Watson. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, Manhunter, it's Joan Allen as the blind woman, Reba, who works at the uh, color film labs where he develops the home movies of the people he kills. Yep. Um, But let's get back to Peterson because I'm intrigued by Cody saying he doesn't have a whole lot of depth because like to me he's one of the quintessential man protagonists because he's nothing but like intense and staring off into the distance and he he resists you know Dennis Farina who's playing uh, Jack Crawford in this one of my fa- my favorite iterations of Jack Crawford, just because it's like a Chicago cop who shows up. He's like, I'm in the fucking FBI. I'm what are you fucking want? FBI. <laughs> hey, we well, compare him to like Scott Glenn, who's like cool as a cucumber. Well, and then Lawrence and, Fishburne yeah. in Hannibal, who's just the voice of God, you know, in that 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 TV show. It's he's so fucking good. But um, you know, what? I 
I completely forgot he was in that. I haven't seen it in so long. Yeah, he's he's one of the best. If like outside of Mads, I, he's my favorite part of that show. Look on the the shelf behind you. Uh, two up, little Funko Pop. Oh. That's Crawford. <laughs> the box right there. This is yeah. Jack Crawford. <laughs> I like it. I, that's I know, that's like. To be fair, aside from James Earl Jones, uh, he he is the voice of God. Yeah, Lawrence he, Fishburne. He's yeah. got the great. Well, and Morgan Freeman. Like, yeah. If we have black men as our gods. Okay, like, so Morgan Freeman's God, and then uh, Lawrence Fishburne is. Jesus. What if God sounded like Danny Glover? <laughs> it's like, hey, young blood, welcome to heaven. <laughs> anyway, what if God sounded like Danny DeVito? I would and be. Then, in- I just started shooting. When I'm, when I'm dead, throw me in the trash. <laughs> I don't know how much time I got left. I'm going to get real weird with it. <laughs> but back, back to William Peterson. Um, I, I actually love him in this because I feel like he totally buys into man's style yep. of, of uh, you know, silent emoting. And, you know, he has the famous line, too, where he's just staring at himself in the rain and it's, it's just you and me now, sport. And like f- I love him in that movie. I, I between this and to live and die in L.A., like I think that's like peak Peterson. It's interesting. Yeah, I I agree. I I see you're coming from Cody. I personally don't feel that way. This is one of my favorite man roles, written and and on the screen. And I think like you said, it's interesting the way you put it that that uh, Peterson is is basically all in on what man is doing. Yeah. Like you're saying with public enemies, there might be some disconnect between how they want to be performing. And Peterson seems game. Like yeah. He's like, I'm ready to do this. And and it's funny because like I've seen some other, you know, film Twitter posts lately of people doing hot takes and being like, oh, I just think the movie's kind of silly. And I, and they, and their main reasoning is, is Peterson and his performance. Because there are these moments, and actually I showed it to a friend in college of the same thing, where He's in the tree when he's looking, and he's like, when he finds the tong sign. Yeah. Didn't you, you son of a yeah. bitch? You watched him all goddamn day, and my and maybe my dad was like, eh, it's a little ridiculous, and <laughs> and like Dave Carlson's like, nah, I don't know if I like that, and but he loves the movie uh, otherwise, and I think, I think part it's hard for me to be objective about some of this stuff because I love the film completely, like every sure. bit I love. It works together. It's kind of arch. Like the, his performance, like goes from very still to very theatrical. Well, it's also like the same reason that someone like Chris Hemsworth has that ridiculous Brooklyn accent in Black Hat. Yeah, because it's just a thing that Michael, you know, Michael Mann behind the scenes is like he has this accent, and it's for a reason, and you're gonna do it. Yeah, and like um, Michael Mann sounds terrifying. By well, he's he, he, yeah. yeah, he's a nightmare person. Like Ooh. the the. Uh, the stories that came off of J- of uh, Miami Vice where they scared Jamie Foxx out of South America because he was so terrified, which uh, Miami Vice for me is the ultimate Michael Mann movie. Um, that, it, that, that and Manhunter go back and forth now for me as, yeah. as my number one. Um, the last one I saw in the theater was Miami Vice. They showed it again at the Alamo. And oh, wow. My buddy Bo and I went. He's like, we got to go see it. I hadn't seen it. It's I hadn't incredible. Seen it. I hadn't seen it on the big screen since it came out. Obviously I've watched it many times since then. And those films have a lot in common. Yeah. A lot. Well, well and also they're, I love um, the gradient in Miami vice. Yeah. The, oh, yeah all gorgeous. of the, all of the digital stuff. And that's where I was going to kind of go with it too, is that for their era, they're very representative of like where films were going. They're kind of ahead of, ahead of their time where uh, man is clearly bringing all of that Miami vice, 
uh, neon detective procedural influence to Manhunter um, in... May I interrupt and ask a question? Hmm. Was uh, Manhunter before Blade Runner? After. After. Four years after. Blade Runner's 82. 82, yeah. Yeah. But with Miami Vice, like he's, again, basically taking the digital experiment that he started with Collateral. Well, really with Ali, but like then fully realized it with Collateral and then pushing it to like next level abstraction, um, which I am just utterly in love with. And then that came to really push like the medium of movies forward in the same way that the Manhunter did in its own way. And probably it's weird. Like Manhunter, as you kind of put it is now, and Cody even brought up with drive is like a huge influence on modern filmmakers, but didn't really move the needle maybe in the moment. Do you think that's true? I think that's true. I, I remember reading an article like in Sight and Sound like years ago, and they were talking about the most, they were saying the most influential, like, like kind of less talked about films of the 80s. Mm. And they were saying it was like, at that point, they were like, it was Paris, Texas that there was another film of. God, Paris, Texas is so fucking good. That's like, that's yeah, amazing. And, but the same thing where you had, they were talking about basically kind of an art house sensibility. Right to um, American filming, obviously you know inventors coming over from overseas and doing this film, and then you know man bringing this really artistic approach to what could have been just a really kind of normal boilerplate piece of pulp, piece of pulp, which, which I mean, it was is. <laughs> when when you read Thomas Harris's novel, and because that's it's published like five years before the movie in like eighty one, like you read it. And it is kind of groundbreaking in terms of like what it's doing in, in analyzing serial killers because Harris was ahead of the curve there mm. in terms of like, you know, using uh, Will Graham and, and presenting the idea of like the empath, you know, the guy whose who's superpower essentially is just extreme empathy and applying that to the thought process of like serial murderers. Like he was ahead of the curve there, but if you read the rest, like it's totally ridiculous. But then for man to come in and kind of apply his auteurist touch, I think, yeah, to your point about an art house, not necessarily art house, because I mean, man was the, the height of like commercial powers. Right, right, right. But he did have an artistic, like an, an artsy streak, let's say, in him. Um, for him to come and apply his own fascination, because it, there's always the debate, and it recently cropped up on film Twitter again, is that is Manhunter a horror movie or not? Like, to me, it's not. It's a no. Michael Mann movie. No, it, I, I think it's a... Uh, it's a procedural. Yeah, 100%. I was going to say, like, suspense, but it's not even that. It's, yeah. There's a lot of... Cause nitty-gritty shit in that movie. My favorite Michael Mann moment in any film he's made is when Will finally uncovers the connection and it's him with his hand on the window and the Graham's theme, the Michelle Rubini song is rising while he's realizing he's, he's realizing that, you know, the, what there were connections between these two families and they both went to the same film lab. Um, and it's such a Michael Mann moment and it's, it's just, it rises and it's perfect. It's like the film is, it's very much about the mental process of Graham. Yeah. Two things, like figuring it out and, you know, getting ahead of this killer and, and saying, am I smart enough to catch him? But also, can I come back from this? Like, I 
was recently I was watching it. I think I just missed this for years, but like the very near the very end when um he first meets Reba after he saved her and they're standing out front of Dollar Hyde's house and she says, Who are you? And he's like, My name's Will Graham and it's like, Oh, this is him saying, I'm coming back. Like, right. you know, he was getting too close with his whole thing and obviously the Hannibal that, that show was Bruce Wayne putting the cowl back on and then saying, I'm Batman. No, it's just the fact that he goes deep with um, as a it's profiler. The thi- it's the thing that Brian Fuller basically takes. That's what I'm extrap- saying. Yeah, he the whole point he totally of the show. expounds upon with Hannibal is that it's like, what if you're able to get too close to darkness? Like, are you ever able yeah. to come back? Um, which, yeah, he has that moment with Reba on the porch in the rain to where he's like, I'm Will Graham. And you're like, are you a fucking serial killer too, man? Like, yeah. but... Um, it gets into all that nitty gritty, gritty like procedural stuff too, to where like you know when they're going in and analyzing the photos and things, and you have the one technician who has that great line where he's just because it's such a man moment too, to where he goes, "You're so sly, but so am I." Mm-hmm. Like Ratner even lifts that line like verbatim, but it's so flat and terrible. His, yeah, and it's flat and terrible in his, where like in man's it sings because. It's not so much that he's he's in love with the idea of like professionals and professionals being great at their job. Yep. And in that moment, it's a man kind of the same way that, you know, Graham has his epiphany moment. It's this guy just basically doing a job and doing it so well and basically be and just taking so much pleasure in the fact that he's like, yeah, motherfucker, you think you're good? I got you. And he's just a guy with a microscope. And like, those are the people that man loves though. He loves cops. He loves technicians. He loves EMTs. He loves anybody who basically puts their life on the line and like on either side of the law and, and just goes for it. Well, even, you know, you know, that, that article in the New York times when collateral came out that a man loves his work. It's like great. I think A.O. Scott wrote it and it was about Michael Mann. Yeah. You're saying loves working with, um, was writing about people doing work and being good at right. their work. And it's basically all of what the insider is. It, exactly. And the insider I think is one of the clearest examples because how did he make a movie about getting a news program on the air? So fucking exciting. Yeah. Like it's all the ins and outs and like the boardroom stuff and all the like legal stuff going on behind closed doors. And like Sorkin does that stuff too. You see it in other yeah, kind of films. The Jeff Bridges one. The newsroom. Newsroom. Yeah. But yeah. I, but I'd rather watch Insider every day versus oh watch God. Newsroom. That Pacino performance and the Christopher Plummer performance yeah. oh. as Mike Wallace are like next level greatness. I mean, he's like, does it give a man in my age pause? Yeah. It's just so God. like that moment where he chastises Gina Gershon's like corporate lawyer. You corporate lackey. You think you're. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, Mike, Mike, it's Mr. Wallace. Yeah, it's. Um, but I, I like what you're saying because, and we're going to get into this, I'm sure, more tonight, but do you think your incompetent little fingers have the requisite <laughs> skills to edit, edit me? me? Wow. <laughs> he, but with man, it's it, it's interesting. I know you have a lot of things to say about this, and we can maybe get into it now, is watching Red Dragon last night and having recently rewatched Manhunter for the 50th fucking time. Um, you, you guys are both commenting on just how flat it falls. Red Dragon sucks so much. Like I, I want to save this for questions when we get, when we kind of, cause I know you want to dive deeper into where this is in the franchise, but yeah, Red Dragon. Well, and it is something we can kind of 
bring up in the general discussion is that there's something interesting to bring it back to Thomas Harris's pulp is that it's a great case study in how if you let an auteur do it like man, or if you let an auteur like Jonathan Demi, who understands the empathy side of serial killer hunting, because that, that movie has empathy for every single character from, you know, Jodie Foster's Clary Starling to, uh, Anthony Hopkins is Hannibal Lecter to uh, James Gum to fucking Scott Glenn. Yeah. You know, like he just gets inside these people's heads and feels for them. I mean, like Ted Levine is an utter monster, but you still feel like bad for him. But it's a great example of how like you let man, an auteur, make these, you know, adapt these books. You let Jonathan Demi, one of the greatest products of the Roger Corman school, uh, adapt these books, and you get fucking art. I mean, like as you just pointed out, you like you get the first horror movie to ever win the Academy Award. You let Brett Ratner, who I'm not on board with the idea of Ratner being like this incompetent fool. I actually think one of the things about Red Dragon is that it's perfectly competent. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's one of its biggest downfalls. He's the X-Men 3 guy, right? Yeah, X-Men 3 yeah. Uh, made the Rush Hour movies, which are all I love pretty Rush damn too. good I love and Rush fun. Hour too. Um, but I mean, like, he's not this bum that like geek culture has made him out to be, but he's also not a visionary and he's not an auteur. He's a workman. And if you let a workman adapt pulp, you get pulp that falls sort of flat. Well, yeah, because the script is, is it's Ted Talley again, who wrote Silence of the Lambs. And the script is, is pretty solid. And But watching it, it it's, like you said, it's a case study of watching um, the same scene and the same, I look into later, the same scene, the same cinematographer. Yeah, you know, Dante Spinotti, that, who's that's also saying that that happened, but yeah. with, with the How, same. Like, when when does that happen in film history ever? Well, I'm gonna bring that up when we actually yeah. get okay. into it, is because I have a theory on what this movie means, the Hannibal Lecter franchise. But it has happened once before, sort of. Okay, um, and it's my, I think to me that the the closest analog um, is Psycho '98. Oh, I was gonna yeah, so that we'll, the bits fun. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll we'll save that for later, though, right? Yeah, we'll save it for later. But I I have a theory that this is the Psycho 98 of like the Hannibal Lecter franchise or whatever we want to put it because it's just a guy almost making beat for beat the same exact movie straight up to lifting lines from man's movie. And when you put them up to each other, you go, ooh, what's missing here? Well, exactly. And that's, and that's like, I was going to, you know, totally agree with you on that, that. A, just being a fan of Manhunter and a fan of Michael Mann, and also just not liking Brett Ratner that much as a filmmaker, it is interesting to just see the lack of life in some of these scenes. Like, for instance, my favorite scene in Manhunter of him discovering the connection is boring as fuck. It's Edward Norton. It's this like centered shot. In one of his worst, if not his worst performance. He's, a, he's terrible in it. And I, he, do, I do remember that from watching it. Uh, it's got that fucking frosted tip hair that's just horrible. No, and he and he looks forward and he says, wait, hey, look, there's, there's, a, there's a lock there. And it's just this wide shot. And like, but he, there was a lock before, and it's just like not pace. Not, he didn't direct the camera well, and he also didn't direct the acting well. Like, there's no pacing to the scene. It's just like the actors are there saying the lines that Michael Mann and threw out, threw out there. And yeah. it, you can just see how much 
and and it's we'll get into more in questions too, but you know, that's why I love this franchise though, is it is a sandbox for auteurs to play in. Well, yeah, because uh, Fuller totally who took his own is thing. a television auteur, takes it and makes Perhaps the, I mean, for me, the most art house. Yeah, well, the most art house and the possible definitive version of Hannibal, Ooh. at least for this new generation. Yeah, and we'll, and man, we we're getting ahead of, but there's so much I want to get to. No, I don't fine. want to no. step on your question. No, 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 but it's yeah, it's you know, but this is the point that I think we all agree that the idea is so strong and. Because, I mean, Hannibal Lecter, people have written that he's kind of treated like a superhero sometimes because, like, he's a villain, but he has these almost Sherlock Holmes level of right. intelligence where yeah. how did he think his way out of that? He's like fucking Batman. And it's like you can do a lot with Batman because you had the mythology, but you can play with it in certain ways. Hannibal, the show, is the example of that. Of you always taking have to kill elements. both of their parents, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Hannibal Rising, the best of the Hannibal series. You know what's weird, though? Is I kind of like actually, it. Yeah, I was going to say I kind of like that movie. I really like Ridley Scott's Hannibal. Um, I do, too. I do after, because it's funny, with our little break taken from recording, I not only, we watched Manhunter, and then I've now watched 34 episodes of Hannibal and Red Dragon. So, like, my brain is totally in Hannibal Lecter mode. And I read parts of Red... I found my old copy of Red Dragon in my storage unit. But did and you rewatch watch that? through that. No, I almost did. Um, you see, I don't love... I really like Manhunter. I think it's very, very good. I don't love it to the level that Martin does. Fair. I love Silence of the Lambs. I think Silence of the Lambs is a near-perfect film. It's great. Um, that screenplay is uh, sex. That's my, still my favorite Hannibal Lecter. Anything. My wife and I watched that. I don't know, six weeks ago, or something. And it's it, yeah. It, it all you can you can put that in the cinema today. It's, it it's, rips. Still, it's still gonna rivet people. Yeah, and I mean, but it's also part of my like for me. Perhaps like my top five directors also include Man and Demi. Like Demi is like one of my ultimate heroes. So like pitting them against each other is like some Sophie's Choice shit. <laughs> but what's that's what's really great about it though is that. I remember my friend and I in college had an argument because I was already like, he's like, if you had to choose, like, would you choose Manhunter or Silence of the Lambs? And I was like, Manhunter all the way. So I was just like ridiculous with Michael Mann like I am now. I would change my tune today that I wouldn't pick either. Because yeah, I they're love- They're different animals. I love that two filmmakers I respect so much both took the same, we can call it franchise, and the same mythology and went two fucking directions with it. Yeah. And and I love them both in very, very different ways. Well, and then, you know, to, it's, to it's take Blade that, Runner and Blade Runner 2049. Well, we haven't even brought up... Well, it's nice that you brought up Blade Runner. We haven't even brought up Ridley Scott fucking makes takes Hannibal. Yep. What many believe, well, in the moment to be the worst Hannibal Lecter book that would soon be replaced by Hannibal Rising. Um which was directed by the guy who made Girl with the Pearl Earring, I, whose name I can't remember. The, but the, the art piece? Yeah, but Ridley Scott... The movie. Uh, oh, okay. Came up and, and made fucking Hannibal into like a gothic vampire movie, which revisiting Hannibal the series made me realize that Hannibal... Like, Ridley Scott has a much bigger influence on... Hannibal the series than anything Michael Mann, anything Jonathan Demi, because of the just the sheer like Scott opulence. Like nobody does opulence like Ridley Scott ever. Well, like, it's the only time you get to, are just huge. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, um, you're good. But I think that 
<laughs> it said in Rome. But he, you're right. No, he um, gets to show Hannibal for the first time that anyone had seen out and about in the fucking world and yeah. living it up. Yeah. And I think like it, that's what I, I would agree that the show takes a lot from is seeing him at dinner parties, seeing him like this snake or the shark moving through polite society. Right. And that, you that's know. like the fantastic thing about it too, is you get to see him out of his cage. Yeah. yeah. You, you just get, you just get told the things that you get, not even directly, you get alluded to, told the, the terrible things that he did and why he's in this uh, specific one cell in the mental hospital that he's in, but to like actually see him out there and manipulating and working his way and just living his life while also being this, Creature of the Night was fantastic. Yeah. Well, in Creature of the Night, you said it's great. Cause like, I love your vampire thing because it's totally right. Is It's like hunting Dracula in a big European city. Right. It's like the hunter. It's, it's in like, Rome, it, isn't it's, it? Uh, it's uh, Florence. Yeah, the Monster of Florence. It's the Monster oh, okay. of Florence because they we are, are close. I, I could have sworn I remembered like a Coliseum shot or something. Maybe that was like the opera house. No, it's the, the Duomo. Yeah. Okay, I haven't seen that in a while. So. But he becomes Il Mostro, the the monster of Florence, which is real. Yeah, which is exactly is a real thing that Thomas Harris like researched for Hannibal the book, and and Douglas Preston wrote mm-hmm. the book about. Yeah, yeah, and he. But I I haven't watched Hannibal probably in a couple years. But I so good what the the movie. But I I so love the Gary Oldman sequence. Everything in that estate is like prime Scott and prime yeah. Hannibal. Yeah, because like, of all of those aerial shots that make because again, it it becomes about two monsters and with Gary Oldman who played Dracula for Francis yep. Ford, Ford Coppola, two monsters hunting one another, which Brian Fuller kind of throws out completely and makes it again man, because I'm I'm smack dab in the middle of season 3. I just ended the episode which is about the halfway point where they they finally capture Hannibal Lecter, but to me, uh the I know a lot of maybe I'm wrong because I didn't pay attention to a ton of the buzz in in season three but like that's widely considered to be the the weakest season right by many fans season three yeah yeah because they were they were canceled um and it's the same that happened with Penny Dreadful that both both showrunners said oh we weren't canceled we decided to end it there it's like oh so you introduced new characters and then ended it abruptly right and so that's what you do Martin yeah and it's but here's the thing I love se- at least the first half of season three. I haven't gotten to the red dragon portion of it yet, which kind of is a disservice to this podcast, but we're going to skip over that part. Um, but like <laughs> the first half of season three is like the best Depeche mode song never written because it's just this like mopey Gothic breakup. Uh, you like were so going to share with me that song. when we're done God, I, I just, I love it. It's just fucking Hannibal and Will Graham and Jillian Anderson and, and Lawrence Fishburne just moping around in Venice and going through catacombs and fucking ca- like Castle Lecter. What are you talking about? But I love this. And then also like murdering people. Sure. Why not? And, and like, uh, just Will Graham and turning them into five star recipes. Oh yeah! Oh, the best that charcuterie show plates of all will time. make you hungry. Yeah, it's so and that good. is that is the true genius of that show is that you know you're quote unquote watching like people being eaten, but you're like, God damn, I'd take a bite. Yeah, I'll eat that charcuterie plate yeah. all day long. Give me some of that liver pate. Yeah, exactly. You know it's good. I bet it's delicious. But it's like uh, the whole sequence where you f- because the one genius thing that. Fuller does, uh, and with his, you know, kind of 
legion of great directors like Vicento Natali is that uh, he introduces each character basically coming to Italy in their own way, but they're all morose and melancholy and like working through the damage that the operatic finale of season two, which is one of the greatest hours of television like I've ever seen in my life, um, but just working through all this shit and this becomes the breakup album, like of them just taking the sojourn through Italy and like Will Graham talking to Abigail Hobbs's ghost and like, oh, it's tremendous stuff. Yeah, and it's yeah. In again, there's just so much you can you can do, and you don't get any of that baroque nature in in Manhunter. But it's all in Ridley Scott's movie. Yep, it's all yeah. there. Um, and yeah, we'll get into more with questions. We'll get into more of the. Should we just jump to questions? I, I, I think feel like we keep saying we'll get into we, it in questions. Yeah, we'll just so, get there now to questions. questions about 1986's Manhunter. Martin, we're going to turn it over to you because it's your pick this week. All right. Thank you, Jacob. Um, we're going to start with, this one's for Cody. Yep. Um, who's your top Hannibal pick? Would it be Mads Mikkelsen, Brian Cox, or, or Hopkins? Oh, if you nice. had to choose. I feel like you have to refine the question a little more. Really? Who's yeah, your fa- who's well, your favorite? Who's just who's your favorite? Like, what's the one that's like? Don't puss out. I yeah. mean, the, the iconic is Hopkins all the way. Like he's like he. Um, so I didn't know this until I caught some some bit of an interview with like Jim Carrey. Uh, so, uh, somehow Jim Carrey ended up at a dinner table with Anthony Hopkins, and they were discussing roles. And Jim Carrey was talking about uh, him doing Ace Ventura and how he based all of Ace Ventura's 
he based Ace Ventura on, on a bird, basically, like all the movements and the actions and everything. And if you go back and watch that, it really kind of plays true. Like he does all the head bob and then the, yeah. the weird kind of dirty action. And Anthony Hopkins is like, oh, I totally get that because I did uh, for Hannibal Lecter. I based his character on a lizard. I wanted to be a reptile. I wanted to be like, you know, cold and non-blinking and very isometric, I suppose. Isn't that the big apocryphal like bit of trivia about his him playing Hannibal Lecter too? Is that he never blinks? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, he never blinks. Yeah. I didn't know that story about Jim Carrey, but uh, Travis Bickle was a crab. My friend was telling me he's a method actor. Yeah, um, that a lot of like actors would they would pick the animal that they're keeping in mind yeah. in terms of physicality, and the crab was because he's he's supposed to be kind of very he moves in these very directional ways. Um, like th- that was what De Niro was thinking of. He's also um, keeping his head like tilted back at all times. His eyes are yeah, just very still, you know, and, um, and direct. Um, but so you're in a, you're in a sense. What's that? I think. Yeah. Well, it, who knows if that's, you know, how much it comes across, but so how about this instead? How about I'll, I'll, I'll rank them for my own choosing. Mm. Uh, Hopkins is the top. Mm. Uh, Matt's in a second. And then, uh, Cox, Cox didn't really have a lot to do in this. I really like Cox. In it, I, I thought Cox kind of looked like, uh, and this is going to go across so poorly. I felt Cox just kind of came across like kind of like a, a, a fish lipped wise guy. What's, what's interesting though. I, I like Cox a lot in this film and is, weren't you, you were telling a story that it was originally supposed to be Brian Denny. Yeah. So the story I've, I've heard is that, because he had worked with Dennehy on Jericho Mile. Michael Mann had worked with Dennehy. And he wanted Dennehy to play Hannibal Lecter, which I think actually would have been really interesting. It would have been different, but I could, I could totally see him doing something with it. And it's hard to imagine now with all the different people who've played the character. But he... Hannibal Lecter is Tommy Boy's dad. Oh, I love it. Uh, but the story goes that Mann said, oh, I want you to play this character... And I believe that then he wrote, read the script and he goes, actually, I think I have someone better for you. And he took him to like the West end and then went to see a play and Brian Cox was in it. And he was like, there's your Hannibal Lecter right there. And like, which is RIP very, God, God Dennehy. Yeah. And, and like, I just like that story. Cause it makes it, it's a very generous thing to do. I mm-hmm. think as an actor and also like, I think Denny, I think that Cox fits the part much more. Um, I think Cody, I'm not, I don't put mouth, words in your mouth, but it's hard it's hard to watch. Even when I first saw it, I'd already I'd already seen Silence of the Lambs, and it's like you get, you know, you get that you get Hopkins, who's also not in the film a lot, but it's like, he it's, owns, like, it's, like it's like nine minutes. It's twelve, I think, okay. right? Yeah, yeah, twelve or thirteen. But he owns the movie. But he's in like he got an Academy Award. But he's like, but he's in the movie. You know what I mean? Like he's in every scene. If he's not there, like his presence you can kind of feel in the film, like yeah. almost like a Machiavellian kind of thing. Well, to bring it back to like Dracula or Frankenstein or something, he's the monster that haunts the movie. He's, he's the Phantom of the Opera. That's a good one. Well, he's, yeah, he's, you know, it's quote Ed Wood. He pulled the string, you know, and, yeah. and I think it is. Yeah. I Cox. Oh, well, I want to hear what your, your ranking is first, man. It's, uh, it's tough because that Hannibal. Yeah, Mads is probably my number one. Like before, it would all like. It's a difficult discussion, right? Because Hannibal Lecter, as we've kind of covered before, has become this piece of pop culture iconography in the same way that 
a Dracula or like yeah. Boris Karloff's it's Frankenstein. Like, it's like there's or, now the, the Hannibal verse. Yeah, you well, not only that, but you have like the Universal Monsters. You have oh, nice. you know Freddy, Jason. You have the the great monsters of horror cinema. Right. But and then you have Hannibal Lecter, which is Anthony Hopkins. So you can't disregard that or throw it out entirely. But and part of this is the let's say particular auteur's invention or, or, or imagining of the character itself is that like I love fucking Mads Mikkelsen. Like he's so good in Hannibal. Like there's a shot. It's the it's the image from the show that has been burned into my brain the most during this rewatch is Hannibal crying. Oh yeah. Hannibal cries at a certain point when Will Graham breaks his heart essentially and that's the essence of uh, Brian Fuller's show. And, but the thing is, it was, I, I felt the way that when people talked about uh, Clint Eastwood in, in the line of fire where he cried on screen. And it, that was such a big deal in the nineties that people were like, Holy shit. Clint Eastwood cried. Like, that's what I thought of while watching Hannibal Lecter cry is I was like, this is a monster. Like, why am I watching this monster cry? But because it's, you're watching his last thread of humanity. Yeah. And it's, it's such a beautiful, weird moment. And in that moment, like I felt like crying too. And I was like, why am I like emotionally identifying with Hannibal Lecter? Like this is fucking weird. But that was the moment where I also said, that's how good this performance is. And also then I watched red dragon and like as good as Hopkins is in Silence of the Lambs is how bad he is in Red Dragon because he's going full oh, ham bone yeah. in that thing. Like right down to the fucking ponytail that he has in the prologue. Y- young, like, he young was, Hopkins is so... Oh, it's so bad. Like he's still having a lot of fun, which you, you totally appreciate because like Anthony Hopkins, legend. Like has some of the greatest performances of all time, including Lecter and like his work with like Merchant Ivory and stuff like yeah. that. But like... Red Dragon, not one of them. Um, Hannibal, though, like his version of Hannibal, I love that he gets to, as we've kind of already covered, play the monster moving amongst the people. So if I were to go ranking-wise, I would go Mads, Hopkins, Cox. And Cox, which we haven't covered a whole lot, he does a lot of heavy lifting with his the short amount of screen time in Manhunter as well. Because again, Lecter's not an icon in that movie, nope. right. but man treats him like a, a quintessential or like a, a great bad guy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very interesting to again, compare red dragon and Manhunter that you can feel when they're watching red dragon is the only reason they made this was to give another chance for Hopkins to play that was like their ace. Yeah, that, yeah. That was, before that was he's too old. To, what the goal was. Yeah, before he was too old to do it. Right, and they're like, right? "Oh, we have one he hasn't played yet, and the book's there. Let's do it." Yeah, and and you see it, and it's just like, like you. See, and also, we know Ratner's like he's not a good director with actors. He's not directing Hopkins. You can also see Hopkins like slipping into little comedy beats that don't match the scene. No, like you're saying, he's kind of going ham in the movie. Um, real quick, I'll do my ranking and then we'll kind of keep going. But for me, it's Mads and then Hopkins and then Cox. Um, I I love. I think it's just also a sheer sake of for, of math that you only get 
so long to see Hannibal as Hopkins and as, as uh, effective as he is and how he's such a part of, like you said, of pop culture, like you get seasons of yeah. an arc, a real character arc where, you know, especially in Silence of the Lambs, like he is, he is moved by Clarice Starling, Clarice Starling. There's a, it's a small arc that he doesn't change per se, but he realizes he doesn't want, he's like, it's a better world with you in it. And, Hannibal seems like, well, and it becomes the love story that essentially fuels Hannibal. Correct. Yeah. So yeah. if I can interject, something you brought up a minute ago kind of made me maybe make a link. I don't know if it's actually there. Uh, in Hannibal Rising, did Hannibal have a younger brother? Or am I making that Sister, up? Misha. Okay. So, so what I was originally going for, I thought I was remembering that he had well, a younger she's in, brother. Well, she's in Hannibal, too. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I thought I was remembering that he had a younger brother, and I thought maybe Will Graham was like a stand-in for that. No, but, that's the My Two Gay Dads thing. But maybe Clarice is the stand-in for his younger sister that he lost. Sort of. That's definitely there, and they do explore the idea of maybe that's where that love came from in right. Hannibal Rising, because you it have... It doesn't ever seem to be like a sexual love, right? More like a intellectual infatuation? Um, that's a weird... A bit of both. Okay. Like, because they also get into the idea that, like, you know, in Hannibal Rising, their parents are killed by the Lithu... Like, Lecter's parents are killed by the Lithuanian army... Or one despotic force that comes in, yeah. and then they're orphaned, and that's where the cannibalism first comes in. Because yeah. to, isn't he forced to eat his own sister? I'm forgetting that. I the, thought he ate like uh, enemy. Tri- it's been so long since this. Yeah, it's that. been it's a that while. Real origin story. But then he he shit. goes and lives with like his aunt or something, who's Gong Li in the movie. Mm. Um, where he learns martial arts. <laughs> my fucking name. Like, I, I, my memory of Hannibal Rising is, is very hazy at yeah. best, but like, um, I remember sort of liking the movie, but the book being borderline unreadable. Well, because um, he wrote it at the same time they were writing the movie. Well, he wrote the movie as well, I believe. Right. That, so they were like, it's the same thing that happened with like Lost World. Right. You know, for uh, Michael Crichton. Yeah, I, I think there's just something to Mads, and I, I just like Mads in anything. Like, I just, whenever he shows up in a movie, I'm, instantly involved like uh, after the wedding is just I think his best performance the um, hunt and the hunt too he just he really brings it but there's something about his role as Hannibal that you especially watching the first season like it takes it, it took me a couple episodes to kind of like shake off that it wasn't just fan service you know because you, you I think there's a, there's a doubt I had as a, as a fan where I was like oh this is just gonna be a Hannibal prequel show or then something I also, I also felt or I also had to get away from the idea that like this is just gore porn. Sure, but it's really good. <laughs> it's gore really it's porn. the gore best. Porn, but... Well, and the fact that like you know when Brian Fuller pitched the idea, where he was talk, he met met the woman from NBC on a plane, and there she's like, "What would you do next?" He goes, "I would do a Hannibal show," and she goes, "Oh, you should do that at NBC." And he's like, "I don't know, it's got to be like HBO, or it's gonna be like really fucked up." She goes, "Well, you do what you want." That's why that show is like the most violent show it's ever been on NBC or any. It's more violent than I think anything that's ever been on HBO. It's fucked. It's disgusting. Yeah. Um, the mushroom cadaver yep. in the grave. Oh, the, the, bee, the bee one, the bees in their face and shit. Like. The bear man. Oh, that's my favorite uh, one, my third episode. Yeah, where he mauls people and like cuts their limbs off and shit. Like yeah. the gore in that is better than like some Savini movies. Yeah. Mm. Brian so, Fuller. I love so you. that's our, our ranking for everybody. Um, 
Let's do... Now, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Can we rank something else? Yeah. Jack Crawford's. Ooh, let's make that another question. Okay. <laughs> we need another question because we hit on a lot of these during our first... Uh, well, because Fishburne's one, right? Yep. yep. Scott Glenn, two. Harvey Keitel, three. No, Farina, three. Keitel, four. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. Farina 3. Like Farina, I like that Farina brings that Chicago cop energy to it, to where he's just like, you're, you're basically waiting for him to eat just a fucking deep dish pizza or like a, a hot dog. strong bowl or, or like yeah. a meatball sandwich. Hey, Will, we need you back on this fucking tooth fairy thing. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, I would I would say for me, definitely number one would be would Fishburne's so amazing. Well, that whole storyline in Hannibal between him and his wife is like one and of Hannibal. the most compelling. Yeah, uh, where Hannibal gets to be her executioner, and then Jesus, man, what a because uh, also because that's Gina Torres from that's Fishburne's wife. Yeah, was that real life. real life? They're married. Oh, I didn't know that. They met on uh, Reloaded, Matrix Reloaded. Oh man, I never actually knew that. I always knew her as. Um, from Firefly, yep. and yeah, I didn't know they were married. They met on set, and they fell in love. Get yeah. the fuck out. Cody, what's your Jack Crawford ranking? Uh, Fishburne all the way, because it's Fishburne, uh, but I just wish he was... Oh, I just thought of this a second ago, and I had it so much better in my mind. Outside what I'm, I, wish, I wish he was less clueless. He's supposed to be... That is that is true. That's one of my frustrations with season two of Hannibal, to where like so much of it is wheel spinning about getting Jack, Crawf- Jack Crawford on board with the idea that Hannibal Lecter is a serial killer, and yeah. you're like, at what point do you just go, yeah. oh fuck, man, maybe if this guy's eating agents people. Brings an idea, yeah. to Maybe flush it out a little bit. That's honestly like because we've discussed it off mic. Um, is that my first go around, I actually quit Hannibal after season two, despite loving the season finale because I was like, I don't know how much more of this I got in me. And I've been totally way more into the vibe on my, on this rewatch, like loving it. So but the, part the of initial it, go through had, had it just like taxed your suspension of disbelief too much. Part of it was, it was a couple things. A, and it's something I want to get into. Maybe it could be another one of our questions since we, we've kind of hit on the other ones, but uh, in terms of Will Graham, I wasn't 100% into Hugh Dancy's performance because I thought it was too over the top. But then watching it immediately after Peterson's uh, made me realize that you have to be over the top about some aspect of Will Graham to really make it hit. That's why Norton's performance fucking sucks. <laughs> he's because he's just like a flatline. Yeah, he's almost like he's almost like a character from like a rejected Criminal Minds like spinoff. Is yeah. that you're like, who is this guy and who gives a shit? Yeah. Like to where like Peterson taps into the intensity of the character where uh, Hugh Dancy taps into the idea that he's just as on the edge as Hannibal Lecter, but be also on the spectrum, which is one of the yeah. things that I really like about it is that it's one yeah. of the first, not one of the first shows, but one of the shows that really, I think tried to tackle that idea of representation with like a, a clear mind of like, you know, wherever you are on the spectrum, isn't a superpower. It's, it's both a blessing and a curse for this guy. And like, it's difficult to deal with. He can, he has trouble functioning in real life. And I just really liked that element of the performance. 
Um, but one of the, the the other thing that I really struggled with, struggled with with Hannibal is that a the killer of the week stuff, despite it thematically mirroring what uh, Will Graham and Hannibal were going through each week, I was like, all right, this is a bit much. It was the same reason why I struggled with Millennium is that mm. I was like, how many serial killers are fucking operating in America right Seriously. now? And they're all in like, Seattle. And they're in yeah, Millennium. Exactly. And they're they're all like in the Seattle area. Exactly. Is <laughs> that you're like, what the fuck is going on? Also, how many of them are this fucking like showy? Inventive. Yeah, exactly. And flamboyant. And then B, the the whole idea of like Jack Crawford, like because like, so if there's 10 serial killers that are putting their work on display, there must be a thousand that are just burying bodies in their basement. Yeah, it, it's it's wild. Like, you just sit there and you're like, the math boggles the mind. Indeed. <laughs> my, my mom loves Swedish mysteries because she's like, no, no one gets murdered in Sweden. And she's like, these are the most fucked up, like, all the Steve Larson shit. It's like these ridiculously over-the-top murders. Yeah. She's, like, she's like, five people get murdered, like, a year in Sweden. And there's hundreds of these shows. But, and- How'd you find the body? Well, we followed the blood trail in the snow. Then we found it in the snow. <laughs> But yeah, that that was my my other main issue with it too is that I was I was watching it going like Jack Crawford's whole trait is being able to to pick and trust young talent. Well, if your young talent comes to you and is like, is that guy? It's it's the guy. I found a big killer. Yeah, it's I the one we've him. been in the room with. That's the Chesapeake Ripper, and Jack Crawford's like, Nah, man, I like that guy. His dinner parties are pretty cool, and he's like. Mm-mm, it's him. He like, gets my wife off my ass every Saturday night. Yeah, I like there's, that guy a lot. Yeah, there's way too much of that. And even on rewatch, I think there's way too much of that. But I, I got into the rhythms of the show more. The, I, I had the exact same experience. I, I got about five episodes in the first time I watched it, and I quit. Be, and it was, I think it was the episode, one of the episodes where Abigail was at home, and one of the people who had been murdered's uh, son like just walks into her house and it, it was, it was a moment where it all came to me together. I was like, there's a lot of suspension disbelief that they have to do on that show where I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was like, I'm not using that kind of person. It's like, where'd he come from? But it still was like, what the fuck? You know, it's yeah. like surrounded by cops. This guy waltzes in and there was just a lot of TV stuff in yeah. the show. Like they're stretching out stuff. And well, the, there's a lot of issues with the Abigail Hobbs stuff because it's like the whole, as much as I love the, my two gay serial killer dads thing is <laughs> it also like stretches it to a point to where you're like, all right, let's fucking get on with it guys. Yeah. And also like some of the plot mechanizations, like I guess spoiler alert, if you've never seen season two of Hannibal, like the whole idea of trotting Abigail Hobbs out at the end, like he had her the whole time. I was like, I like this on on an emotional level, but I have questions. Like where the fuck has she been for 12 episodes? Like it's a, it, 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 you have to suspend your disbelief a bunch, but again, I think Fuller hits the emotional notes to such a great degree that you're like, eh, fuck it. Who cares? As a, as a one big painting, like I once, like you said, you got to get in the flow, of the which show. is a good way to put it. Cause it's such a painterly, oh, it's so baroque and just yeah. like it, you know, you, you get in the vibe of the show and it's very consistent and you kind of just let it take you where it wants. Um, right. And so anyway, I think it might have played out a little better if they hadn't done the uh, monster of the week kind of thing and more right. like stretched out like one killer like per half season or well, season and pa- maybe. And part of me really liked that because I like the idea of taking Garrett Jacob Hobbs, who's basically like a toss away mention in both the book and uh, mm-hmm. both iterations of the mo- of Red Dragon the movie. 
Um, and doing two episodes with and him? And doing... One. Well, he's Just the, the opening episode, but then his daughter becomes yeah. the, the, the hinged or, or the, the, the crux of it, a big emotional storyline. Um, Women can't be serial killers. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, it takes a man to do something like that. It takes that. a man to skin a human like an animal and eat every piece of them. Anyway. Drag, drag their body into a beehive in the woods. God, what's the question to? So... Um, <laughs> Where does this stand, do you think, on the Michael Mann filmography? And we've kind of beaten around that question. We'll say personally. We'll not say, like, you know, what's the better film? What is considered the better film? Like, what do you think, just, like, on your list? Fuck. Um, Miami Vice is the ultimate man film for me because, to me... It's man folding both his thematic and uh, tech fascinations onto each other and, and producing something that, an iteration of something that he had done before, but in a totally new way, uh, and perhaps like the, the, the most maximalist way for, you know, whatever that is, 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, two is Heat. Like, Heat for most people is the Michael Mann movie. Yeah. You know, three insider. Oh no, three is thief. Four is insider. Five. Fuck, this is where it gets hard because mm, either collateral or manhunter. Okay, I'll go with manhunter at five. It's top five. Okay. Yeah. So get the top five there? It fluctuates, but like top five, because I like its complexity more than collateral. Even a collateral, I think, is one of the most visually, like aesthetically pleasing movies ever made um, and has one of the best cruise performances ever made. Um, Mohicans, obviously, is a gorgeous epic. Uh, it's that was so that, hard. That was the favorite, my favorite for really a long time was Mohicans and. I still think it's gorgeous, but it it goes further and further down my list while their stuff rises up, just right. in terms of what I want from Michael Mann, and I'm getting more of that with... Well, and like the digital era of Mann, I feel like, outside of Miami Vice, is also one that needs to be considered more heavily and was also rejected too roundly upon like their initial releases because I really like public enemies. Like I've probably watched that movie 15 times and black hat, which we're going to talk about later this week with our, our special guest for the week, I think is basically a, a stealth remake of Manhunter in a weird way, only with computer hackers and global terrorists. So, so you're saying it's a lawnmower man. Uh, Kind of, <laughs> but with Chris Hemsworth doing a Brooklyn accent instead of Pierce Brosnan fucking in cyberspace. Um, I love that shit. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it, it's like top five probably, but they you, fluctuate. How about you, Cody? So up front, I'm not a, I, I don't have a staunch library knowledge of Michael Mann's work. I was just looking over his things as uh, Jacob, you were answering your questions, um, or doing your list rather. Um, but I, as I didn't enjoy Manhunter as like an entire collaborative film, but I really enjoyed the parts of it that I discussed earlier, and I, I did really enjoy those parts. So I'll I'll give it Manhunter and then uh, Collateral because I really enjoyed like the the gradients and, and the the true life nature that Collateral had to it. 
outside of that, I don't have a lot for you. No heat. I gotta watch heat again, and I and I gotta watch it with you guys. Any the la- the anytime. Last time, the last time I saw heat was probably seven or eight years ago, and all I really remember thinking about it was like, man, this movie is so long. How dare you? I know. I know. We'll watch it. You know what? I think that's going to be my birthday movie this year. So okay. we'll just do that. Oh, I'd, I'd love to watch it and twist my arm, pick your brains, get your opinions and, and reshape my eyes on it. Yeah. Cause I had coffee with Macaulay a half an hour ago. <laughs> half an hour ago. <laughs> what did, about did you? Did you fall in love last night? I'll believe that. Did you <laughs> fall in love? The thing that I do remember liking a lot about Heat, though, is like the the accuracy of the the sound capture of like those rounds going off, like God, down yeah. in, in the street and like downtown, like the the just the concussion that comes off of each shot and it like echoes off of the the, the giant concrete structures and the glass, like it's great. We mm. pissed so, off my neighbors with that because we got a sound system in my house in Ohio, and the first thing we did was put Heat in, go to that scene, and crank it all the way. And like our neighbors like all came out of their houses to tell it. There was a gunfight. Well, they say like some uh, SWAT teams and stuff actually watch uh, Val Kilmer's movements in that movie and in like their training sessions because they're like, yeah, that's how you're supposed to pivot and shoot and move and hold your gun. And it's like, that's yeah. So it's not only a question, but off of that, that's like the opposite of Armageddon where they show us astronauts and they're like, tell us all the things they did wrong. Armageddon is 100% scientifically accurate. Thank you. <laughs> well, because man, you know, back Stephen to Stephen Hawking actually wrote that movie. I don't know. If yeah, you know it's that. true. Still, uh, ghost, he ghost wrote it. Neil deGrasse Tyson watches it every night before he goes to bed. Oh my God. <laughs> There's someone I don't want to hear fucking discuss Armageddon. It's Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier, but you know, in, in terms of the research that Michael Mann has his actors do, like, um, Heat was one of those. I know that they spent a lot of time doing weapons training and all his films do weapons training. Like one of my favorite stories is um, they're interviewing Mark Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo. And he was like, yeah, I, um," they're like, what was it like training for the part? He's like, I don't fire one shot. I am a crack fucking marksman now. Like he trained for months just for one shot of him pulling a gun. Like Michael Mann was like, yeah, you're going to train for months just because you can pull your gun. Right. Hey, Thanks for the free lessons. Yeah, and and then they did the same where he and um he and Dave Lewis they I think they did log cabin living for weeks together like out yeah. in the wilderness and like Daniel Lewis has to train like because those uh, muscles are so heavy he had to train by running through the like, through the woods. To well, didn't he train? Lewis got like uh, pneumonia or something because he like he he chose to live out. Yeah, in the he wilderness. lived in it the was... wilderness and like hunted and fished the way Hawkeye would. And... Right, but he didn't do a good job of it, and then he had to go to the hospital. Well, you know, we all but, have our own learning curves. No, I'm saluted to the man. I couldn't do it. <laughs> but respect. Um, Next question. So then we will say, um, we kind of talked about this as well, but like. Wait a minute. You haven't given us your ranking of yeah. oh, filmography, motherfucker. Son of a bitch. Um, Manhunter, Manhunter's one. Um, what? Yeah. It's just my, I said, what's my favorite? It's I would just, like to note for the listening audience that Jacob just eye-rolled to the fucking moon. Yeah. <laughs> no, Manhunter's one. Um, and then two is Heat. Three is Insider. Um, four is, is Vice, Miami Vice. Um, shit. What am I going to give five to? Thief? Oh, Thief. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it, 
Thief might even beat Miami Vice down to five as well. I love Thief a lot. Cody hasn't seen Thief. Nope. We might have to do Thief on my birthday. I definitely. That Criterion Blu-ray is real nice. I'd love mm. to get down. Yeah. Next question. Um. So, I was wondering what kind of man hallmarks you saw pop out in this movie uh, in terms of like thematically visuals, because it is an interesting movie that comes after a considered failure on his part of um, Manhunter, uh, sorry, of uh, the keep, but also like critically. That's not just on man's part. Like the keep is a failure. I enjoy stuff about it, but it's no, a failure. Well, so I'm saying, yeah, it failed. And I'm saying it failed in every right. Like yeah. it, everyone hated it. He hates it. He doesn't want to talk about it, but it like practically taken away from him. Yeah, yeah. And Manhunter is this kind of like, okay, I can actually make a film and it's really great. But I think there's some stuff in the film personally where you have him still moving in a certain direction of things he's interested in, but it's also him kind of broaching some subjects for the first time um, that he hadn't done in his other previous films. Like, what did you see pop out? Um, The biggest one that we haven't really hit on, but it could also help us circle back to our idea of like auteurs tackling Thomas Harris's pulp is that uh, this feels like the first time that man really plays with the idea of dark mirrors, at least on a cinematic level where like Fuller saw it as a gay romance. Demi saw it as a, a plea for empathy for even serial killers. This is very much about two professionals, one being a professional investigator and one being a professional killer um, using one another and toying with one another and playing games. And that's something that obviously like would follow man throughout his entire career. I mean, that is heat. Yeah. That is public enemies. Yeah. That is uh, black hat. Like that's what this is. Like it's two professionals going at it and playing games with each other and, and until the ultimate end. And it's wonderful because the one thing that we haven't covered and maybe we'll save it because you've kind of teased us with some other questions is that man changes the ending of the book. Uh, in my mind for the better in this, but it, it, it's also a, a quintessential Michael Mann ending with a, a shootout and a guy jumping through a fucking window and everything. And like, it's great. But again, it's about two professionals meeting and like head to head because one of them can't live. Like you, there's only room enough for one. It also kind of ties into like Cutter's way. Yeah, exactly. With like the whole window jumping and everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. That slow motion shot is amazing. And Fuller kind of replicates it in Hannibal with the the bear killer who jumps through Will Graham's window. I think my favorite thing about man is two men on opposite sides of the law or two two ideologies kind of warring with each other. Um, I think he's great at that. And it's funny because my friend Bo and I talk about this a lot where we, we talk about how the female characters aren't always the most developed and that's completely true, but it works perfectly for the story he's telling because these men are quickly leaving them behind. Well, and it's something that we kind of talked about while watching the scream factory Blu-ray, which is sadly out of print now is that we watched the director's cut, which a lot of the, you could tell on the Blu-ray what was basically the restored footage because it, 
well, looked like <laughs> shit. Yeah. Um, but all the restored footage almost entirely revolved around... It would go from looking Will great Gr- to looking like it was filmed on like a 1994 camcorder. Yeah, like you were watching it on VHS almost. But like it was all about Will Graham and his wife and that idea of like the, the, the strains that uh, true professionals put on their own relationships. And I mean, that's a fucking theme that's run through man's work from there as well. I mean, even in thief too, is there like, um, every scene where it's like Will Graham basically being interrupted to even freaking out out of his wife at a certain point. Like it's, you can tell like the studio was like, why is this in here? And it's just Michael Mann being like, well, this is what I'm interested in. Well, it's also great because it shows the wife as like a, a measure of his like dissension back into the darkness. Absolutely. Yeah. He starts out so loving and, and close with her and then it just. Well, and like you compare and contrast it to like Ratner's play on it. Like, <laughs> like uh, who you have Mary Louise Parker. Oh, Gorgeous. One of my all-time crushes ever who like show I completely forgot she was in this movie until her credit came up and I was like, oh God, Mary Elise Parker. I was also Thank excited. You. But she is literally in the bookends and then disappears. Like Ratner does not give one flying fuck about the relationship between Will Graham and his wife, where like man is like, no, this is what it's all about. Right, no, and, and I guess what I meant by, like, his character sometimes, like, people think that the women are, like, maybe unrealistic or underdrawn, but, like, it's more about what they represent to the main character as well. Because, oh, like, oh, like, sure. like, what Cody said, I think it's perfect what you said, is that, you know, she is, she's the light. Like, and, and the way that, especially in this movie, he depicts, like, this almost heavenly glow around her. Yeah, that whole at, dream at, sequence. The, the dream sequence. Now, my second favorite scene in the movie is him, you know, dreaming on the plane of, being on the boatyard, this like idyllic, you know, having a, just putting a beer with her, she comes down for lunch and it's just like, he sees her and it's like pure love. And then he wakes up and it's like, you know, the photos have fallen out of his folder and a little girl is like looking at like the these airplane. dead body foot. It's a great cut. Um, but I think that's the other, the main thing he starts to tackle here too. Like you said, is that it's the, the strain that being a professional, like Vincent Hanna saying, all I am is what I'm going after. In right. heat, you know, and it's like, how can you keep a marriage or the big, you know, the the big, you know, moment of heat is Le- leaving Edie. Leaving Edie is is him sticking by. You see the heat around the corner, you well, go. And it's also the reason why, like, I know a lot of people who complain about heat, and you're all being put on fucking blast right now, who complain about Natalie Portman's uh, suicide attempt. That they were like, you could cut that out. That's too extraneous. Like, I don't understand why you have to to understand it or like need it. And you sit there and you're like, no, this is the illustration of like this little girl has been neglected because her mom's doped out because of her and having an affair because her dad's, you know, her surrogate dad at this point, because her, her real dad's gone. Her surrogate dad does nothing but live with dead people on the streets. And now she's fucking killed herself to get any attention whatsoever. So whenever anybody's like, Oh, Natalie Portman's suicide, you could cut that out and lose nothing. It's like, no, you don't understand the movie. Well, it's also structurally perfect. Cause it, it brings you it, just from like a, you know, from that screenwriting standpoint, it brings you down here. It's almost like a false ending where he has this sense of completion of like he saved her and then it's like he's like sitting there kind of relaxed for the first time with his arm around yeah talk, you know talking to his his wife and all of a sudden then he gets the beat then he gets the beep and yeah. he even says i can stay 
Like, he basically offers her, and she's like, no, you go. And then you see him excitedly run down the stairs into Act 3. <laughs> you know, it's like that great... You know, I totally agree. You can't cut that scene out of the movie. Because, like, he uses... Is it Diane Verona? Yeah. Who plays his Vincent Hanna's wife, and then also plays... Um, Crow's wife. Russell Crowe's wife in, in The Insider, and you get to see her as being basically man standing for, like, the domestic shrapnel that occurs because of these these main characters' atom bombs, you know? Um, and, and men sticking to, like, an honor code. I mean, Insider's definitely an honor thing. I think he's, you know, I have made a choice, and she's like, well, where am I in fucking this? You yeah. know, like, we're losing our house, we're losing our insurance, we're being threatened, well, and like Verona uh, verbalizes at one point, she goes, you know, you scan the terrain, you do nothing but live with the dead, and we are, I'm paraphrasing, but we are essentially the uh, disaster that you leave in your wake. Yeah. And it's, ugh, God, he just, now I'm like rethinking my, my Michael Mann rankings because it's like, he does Where are you at now? A def- like, just a fucking masterpiece of a movie. Well, and, like, how many movies after Heat want to be fucking Heat? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Like, I would yeah. say at least 100 Hollywood output. Like... Some of them are great. I love Den of Thieves. That's Redbox Heat, baby. <laughs> the, town. Yeah. Yeah. the town. Yeah. The, the town, town also good. Amazing. Yeah, super good. Yeah. Especially the extended cut. The three-hour cut is fucking amazing. I don't, I don't know amazing. that I've seen that, but I love the town. Yeah, it's so... But it restores all the things that we're kind of talking about here, if you've never seen the three-hour cut, is it's all the romantic stuff. Mm. Because Affleck actually got that, like, man at his core is a romantic director. Like, so many of his movies are about romance. Like, even Black Hat, some of the greatest sequences are uh, Chris Hemsworth falling in love with his uh, Chinese compadre. Yeah. And, oh, it's just... Mm. I could go on for chef's days about chef's it. Chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. Like... Um, yeah. Anyway, next question. Um, we're, so I want to basically, we have a couple left here, but I want to bring up something I think you want to talk about. And that is, let's talk about Spinati working on, you have a theory. It sounds like about, we have Spinati. I've kind of already spun it is that, uh, red dragon is the psycho 98 of like the Hannibal right. Lecter universe because you have Ratner coming in and essentially doing like whole scenes from Ted Talley's screenplay are um they're just Manhunter, both yeah. in rhythm, cadence, direct lines, the shot selection, the shot selection, using the same cinematographer. Like it's Ratner trying to replicate the same level of greatness that man got to and basically giving you maybe the first Netflix movie because there's a reason that that movie is constantly on Netflix is that it's a glorified TV pilot just put on the big screen with a, a prestige cast. I really, again, I just, I despised watching it again. I had a terrible, it was boring as hell. I don't despise it. I I actually think it, it's serviceable, but that's also its worst. It's a learning experience. Attribute. It's <laughs> the best way to. I think we all learned something here. We today. all learned something from watching Red Dragon today. But it, it it's serviceable. But that's the worst. It's both the best and the worst thing about it is because it's totally watchable. I looked at my watch and I was like, "Holy fuck, we're an hour and a half into this movie. It's almost over." And it's totally because the cast is great, which is also one of its greatest sins. Is that it? It wastes 
Edward Norton, Ray Fiennes, Emily Watson, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Harvey Keitel, Mary Louise Parker, like all these, like that. How did you not create a masterpiece? Those are all, those are all seat packers. Yeah. How do you? The only one that feel and Anthony Hopkins returning as Hannibal Lecter, the only one who feels totally keyed into the movie is Ray Fiennes. And he, I feel like, is still miscast because he's too good looking. I'd say Ray Fiennes and also um, Emily Watson. Oh, Emily Watson. Watson. No, their scenes, like you even said it, because I I texted you both and I was like, watching Red Dragon. The movie comes alive when they start to have their romance together. Oh, and Frank Whaley. I haven't seen this movie in over 10 years, but that's that's the only parts that I remember are Ray Fiennes and Emily Watson with their romantic... Interludes. In, in, interludes, yeah, yeah. When when he starts coming alive, like you know, staying back watching her while she's like running her hands through the the fur of the tiger, like gives that, him a blowjob while he's I watching. I, I the, actually the, don't remember that at all. I had forgotten video. that until I was like, oh, I've heard stories. You know, certain filmmakers like when they made American Graffiti that like Lucas is not to direct actors; he just doesn't direct them. So if you want to get a performance, they all had to work together, to like kind of figure out what's the scene yeah. about. That's what I think probably happened. I mean, I'm not gonna. I don't was on set, but like. I feel like we have actors like Ray Fiennes and Emily Watson, like, all right, we got to fucking sit down and work this out together. Right. You can feel that they are in sync together. Like they, the scene works like they're in the same scene. They're both deep emotional actors. Well, and they're just, they're both there. Like they have figured out how to make the scene work for them versus you watch like Kytel and, and, and um, fucking Norton are in different movies. Yeah. There's no, <laughs> like they're not like they're like, they're talking. Well, but... I feel like they're at the same wavelength, but their wavelength is we're just collecting a check. Like absolutely here. I feel um, like Edward Norton's wavelength, and this is just what I remember from ten years ago. Is like he he had taken a couple of volume and was like, I already did American History X. It's yeah, it's weird because like he doesn't where William Peterson and Hugh Dancy are so far over the top. Like Norton's almost underplaying it, and it doesn't work at all because like uh, Will Graham has to be on the edge. He has to be like almost ready to snap at any moment. Um, but the thing is, like, when I compare it to Psycho 98, I should kind of give the audience at least this information. I'm one of the few defenders of Psycho 98, because what I think is interesting about it is that it was Gus Van Zant at the height of his commercial uh, appeal. That was the movie that, like, shut him out, wasn't it? Well, it was the movie he made right after Goodwill Hunting, like, getting... Yeah, he was untouchable Award at that moment. Nom- nominations... And wins a, a huge box office. He's the Weinstein's guy at that but point. But then he did Psycho, and then he got like and then he well not blacklisted because he made Brown Finding listed. he made Finding Forrester afterwards. Um, so like he was still there, and he still continued to make his art movies and everything. But Gray like listed. it almost felt like him uh, actively <laughs> rebelling against the idea of being a commercially successful director to where. Red Dragon is a commercially successful director with Brett Ratner coming in off the, you know, the rush hour movies and everything and being like, well, how do I return to that? How do I make money again? And he took a franchise which had been guided by auteurs and by artistically minded people. Cause even Demi, Demi is one of the, I think one of the reasons that his movie works the best out of the franchise is because he's a guy who is both an auteur and comes from the Roger Corman school. Because I just watched uh, one of the few exploitation movies of his that I had never seen before. A movie called Fighting Mad from 1976 with Peter Fonda, Scott Glenn, 
Um, and it's about a guy who basically like Peter Fonda is a guy who comes home to, to his, his rural hotel, hometown where like a uh, corporate conglomerate is moving in and, and seizing all their land and basically kills his family. And he goes on a rampage against these people with a bow and arrow and fucking takes them out. And like, you just described the plot of Ernest goes to camp kind of. Yeah. But it's with Peter Fonda and it's way more violent, but like he goes after them, kills everybody. But it's the moment where you realize because you're watching Demi, uh, fuse his fascinations with commercial appeal that Corman would approve of is that he made a straight up exploitation revenge movie while also making this movie about uh, corporate influence, basically pushing out the little guy, and you're like, oh yeah, that's what an auteur does. Where Ratner is the antithesis of that to where he's a corporate guy who comes in and is like, how can I turn this into a thing that makes money? I cast a lot of stars, I replicate all the shots that people, you know, the cult of this original movie already kind of are tuned into. I use the same cinematographer from the one film, I use the same uh, writer from the other film, and I just make that and it makes money. And it's like, it did make money, but what was interesting about Van Zant's is that he takes, he was coming from the Demi school of like, okay, well, I'm at the height of commercial success. How do I reject that? Well, I just remake Psycho, but I bring in Christopher Doyle and make everything glow. And I cast all these people who are doing these weird imitations. Vince Vaughn, at kind of the peak of his early movie stardom, gets to play Norman Bates in a role that's wildly miscast but at the same time i like the performance that he does that giggling weirdo thing that he it's totally different than uh anthony perkins it's a it's a thing that like looks like it should work but for whatever reason does not yeah well he almost seemed happy that it didn't do well because I remember hearing interviews with him and he was like this is an experiment like he, yeah. he even said that he's like this is not like Ratner's just a, a shit and he's like I'm gonna copy other people because I have no idea what I'm doing but I think that um <laughs> I don't think Ratner's shit I think in an alternate timeline Ratner is like our version of um Robert Klaus like the guy who just jumped from genre to genre and made financially successful movies that pleased crowds and brought movie stars into into your um you know your living room or your your local multiplex and he's fine but you know and red dragon kind of does that but it's just not good it's like whenever somebody says i prefer red dragon to manhunter it's basically them going i prefer psycho 98 to hitchcock and you're like okay well that's stupid yeah i'm when people say that it's a really, it's a simplistic way of, it's also, I feel like it's a thing a person that who's like a horror fanboy for Hannibal would be like, I will, I want to see Red Dragon. And it's like, oh, so you don't have any good taste. And like, you like, you're not understanding. You're a basic. You're a basic. And you're not understanding that this is a Michael Mann film. Like we were saying earlier too, like this is more a Michael Mann film than a Hannibal film, you know, because it's not, it doesn't feel like it's part of that universe at all, but it has more in common with all of Michael Mann's work thematically, visually, Mm -hmm. you know, know, it's like, and I think we mentioned this when we were watching it, like Mann is also known for having great disdain for subject material, for source material. 
he is, I'm not sure, I don't know what he said about the book. I can imagine what he would say because he ripped on James Fenner Cooper's Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, because he, he preferred the early, like, the 30s. Third, the film. 30s. He, it was, they gave credit to the 30s script, I believe, not the James Fenner Cooper book. And my mom is like an English professor and has taught those books for years. Saw that movie in the theater and she almost walked out. She took her English class because he changed so much and kind of went his own way with it. Because Michael Mann's like, well, he made that a romance. He made it a romance. He's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do Michael Mann. And I think that's the same he did with Manhunter here, where it's like, I'm going to tell Michael Mann's story. Sure. Well, 100%. With the trappings I've been given. But I think that goes back to the whole idea of why I think some of us, or all of us, uh, struggle to call it a horror movie, because it's just a Michael, it's another Michael Mann crime movie. That I, just, w- I would not call it a horror movie. Yeah, it would just it's just centered around serial it's, killers it's as opposed to... with gore aspects. Yeah. Well, and it's like, centers around professionals it, the same way, you know, thief centers around safe crackers. And if he, they had shown like the actual processes of the torture and the putting the mirrors in the eyes and the murders and stuff, then, then maybe. maybe. Yeah. But even then it doesn't quite work. Yeah. Well, also I think horror films need a monster coming for like your main hero at, at some point it, it feels like because it's one well, man completely ex- excises the end of the original book which right is that yeah and it's like so you what have more the, of a sense of well the end of the book is it's red ratner's dragon. red dragon to where i don't remember um well basically dollar hyde fakes his death during a <laughs> fire in his house which doesn't make any sense it's a very stephen kingish very pulpy yeah it's very pulpy but then he comes after will graham and his family at their home in marathon florida yeah i remember the florida part yeah because lector basically sets them up which doesn't make a whole lot of sense well doesn't is is that the same play in that they do in manhunter no manhunter remember darl hyde pulls the shotgun out and he dies in a shootout no, 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 with no. Will Graham. I'm, I'm talking about uh, Lecter uh, leading Earl, earlier to, to Will. All right, double feature idea. Cody. Blade Runner. All day long. I I just feel like this is like it's uh, it's it's sister film. It it feels it just holds and I've said this before like it just it just holds the air in such a way. It, it makes the air sing with its tone and it's it's lack of vocalization but it's still interpretation of actual emotional progression I yeah love it. it's very vibey those are, those are the things i love the most about it jacob i thought about this a lot over the last couple of weeks especially watching it i have an outside the box suggestion in a modern movie paul verhoeven's l I uh, saw it for the first time. I loved it. Yeah. The movie Isabelle Huppert, uh, where she essentially gets into a cat and mouse sort of affair with her rapist, um, which I think is just one of Verhoeven, Verhoeven's many masterpieces um, that gets into the psychology of victimization and flipping that idea back kind of on its head and empathy and... It, it it would pair weirdly well with Manhunter, just as like if you're watching something from the '80s and watching something from the aughts, like pick up Paul Verhoeven's. I also feel like not a lot of people saw it. 
Like it kind of came. I haven't went, seen it, and I love Verhoeven. And like air, art house freaks saw it. They went nuts. Like fest, the festival crowds. Yeah. Like I heard it about it for years before I actually. Well, watched it was also because it. it's a very risque subject matter. Um, you know, with especially with a man tackling the idea of like what if a woman not necessarily fell in love with her rapist, but started a borderline romantic relationship with him. Like that. That's ground you don't really want to be treading on too hard but like Verhoeven being Verhoeven it's like one of the great uh, treatises on, on perversion and kink and as usual he does it with his usual uh, Hitchcockian mastery so I would watch L with Manhunter nice um, I have thought about this for weeks as well and this was a hard one for me yeah. Because for me, man... Is you don't want to do one of the rip-offs. Like, I thought about Copycat, the one with Sigourney Weaver mm. and Holly Hunter for a while, but I was like, do you want to do a Copycat movie afterwards? Yeah, it's... In, or it's like, it's, it's hard to... Like, man, obviously, has a lot of um, Venn diagrams with other genres and types of filmmakers who are kind of on the same on the same lawn as him. Um, I actually decided to go with Blue Velvet. Um, I, whoa, when Cody said Blade Runner, when we were, cause I think you picked that when we were watching the film. Yeah. I was thinking about that article from Sight and Sound, I believe, where it was just talking about most influential, like mid eighties kind of art house, but also like popular films that like kind of were both at the same sure. time. Um, they, are both just like moody as fuck in different ways. Um, Lynch is just another, obviously one of my favorite filmmakers. It's his most, also his most Lynch moody. What do you mean? (laughs) It's his most, I think one of his most accessible films, I think as well. Well, and also is weirdly, uh, it mirrors man's struggle really well in terms of like Lynch was coming off of the commercial kind of, Yep. catastrophe that was Dune. Absolutely. And then he, he went back to his roots and was like, fine, fuck you. I'm going to make a David Lynch movie now. And he made maybe the ultimate David Lynch movie mm-hmm. with Blue Velvet. Um, but yeah, man, that's a good pick. Yeah, I just, I think that when you, that I love that era. And I also think of like Paris, Texas, just like that era of like, thematically doesn't link up as well. And also I think blue velvet thematically links up with its ideas of the mirror image and crossing over into a darker sphere, you know, the idea of like Jeffrey kind of and Frank on these other ends and like him realizing, Oh, I'm not that different in in all these ways than the villain of this. Yeah. And the idea that there is true evil. Like I think Lynch believes in true evil. And I think that, that also there are true evil characters. There is true evil and he has it inside of himself. Oh, Absolutely yeah. not. <laughs> I think he's. I think he's the best. Um, I don't think you think I, he's evil. I think he believes that yeah. every human being possesses evil. I think is where. But Cody's what were you meaning by that, Cody? I agree. That's exactly what I mean. He, yeah. Uh, he actually he did a, a podcast with uh, Mark Marion and he kind of addressed that. Yeah. Okay. Like, sorry. I I I thought you were going someplace else with that. No. Um, I think like I I agree with Cody. I feel like that and Firewalk with Me are his kind of big statements about the idea that like everybody possesses the capacity for true awfulness. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, I think that like what I actually was attacking there, Cody, was that my my dad one time when we saw uh, when we saw uh, Straight Story, he's like, oh, this is. Um, 
David Lynch's penance. This is like, because he makes these other films that are so dark. Is that how your dad speaks? No, I, I love you, Dad, if okay. you ever listen to this. But like, <laughs> I, you know, that, and I think that, yeah, Straight Story is one of his kinder films. Like, it's definitely the one you could like, I could show to my nephew who's five or he's six, you know, and Straight Story is one of those because, you know, it's rated G, but... A even, Disney movie. It's Disney. And even though he deals with like dark themes in his films, like there is like a soul and a heart, you know, there is like, I think you said if you're, if there is evil in all of us, there's also good, you know, there, I think he does believe in good, especially in blue velvet, you know, um, that there's a way to, to, to beat evil in some way. Um, but yeah, that's my pick. That's a good one. Last question, guys. Um, is this a certified face melter? I'll start with you, Jacob. No. Mm, it's close, but no. It just, it's a great auteur movie. It's not a face melter. Yeah. It's a little too, as we kind of recognized with Cody as he was watching it, like, and also you've addressed too that you've seen other people do this. Like, it's, if it doesn't click with you, you kind of reject it out. Not outright, but like, you're just, it's not going to sit well with you. And face melters, they have a universal kind of appeal. And this one does not. Yeah. It's beautiful in its own regard. It, 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 it carries weight in, in certain points and, and it, it, it transverse that it, it moves that weight around throughout the film, but it, it doesn't hold it all the way through it. And it definitely gives you points where you can, kind of breathe and relax and, and reassess what's mm-hmm. going on. So I don't feel like it's a complete face melter. No, I agree. You know, this is one of my favorite movies ever made. Um, I have shown it to many friends who I think will like it. And I think it definitely is a secret handshake film where it's like, I have people I'm like, I think you might like this 100% and, and they'll, and they'll love it. And it's like, Oh man, I've never seen something like this, but then you know, comparing it to again our one certified face melter hard target. Holy shit! I mean, like not even close in terms of not even in the same galaxy. The enjoy the enjoyment of watching, and I enjoy this. I enjoy Manhunter immensely. There are astounding elements and scenes and aspects, but it's and don't you think like the definition of face melter is us like looking at the screen and going oh like numerous times during a movie? Yeah. And there's none of that in yeah. Manhunter. None of it. Yeah, it's very somber. And I love it for that. Man, we're now, what, one for six on the face, the face melter Certified status? Certified face yeah. melters. But it, but it makes, I like that, though. It, it makes it mean something. Yeah. yeah. And if, if it versus if every week. We're not just handing out purple hearts here. No, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And on that note... <laughs> I'm glad that you all tuned in to Spy Number Six, 1986's Manhunter. Martin, as always, pleasure. Indeed. Cody. My good sir. Very handsome. Thank you. What do we have next week? Oh, boy. One of the great teen movies of all time. Super excited to share this because I believe you haven't seen it, Martin. I have not. And Cody may have seen parts of it but doesn't remember it. I've seen parts, and I remember liking the parts that I saw. There we go. So you'll have to tune in next week to see what's one of the great teen movies of all time. Until then, we'll see you then. 
for a secret handshake. <laughs>